The book of Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible, and it picks up the storyline from the previous book, Genesis, which ended with Abraham's grandson, Jacob, leading his large family of 70 people down to Egypt. Now, Jacob's 11th son, Joseph, had been elevated to second in command over Egypt, and he had saved his whole family in a famine. And so Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, offered the family to come live there as a safe haven. And so eventually Jacob dies there in Egypt, and Joseph and all his brothers do too. About 400 years pass, and the story of the Exodus begins. Now, that name refers to the event that takes place in the first half of the book, Israel's Exodus from Egypt. But the book has a second half that takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai. In this video, we'll just focus on the first half, where centuries have passed, and the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied, and they filled the land. Now, this line is a deliberate echo back to the blessing that God gave all humanity back in the Garden of Eden. And it reminds us of the big biblical story so far. Humanity forfeited God's blessing through sin and rebellion, and so God chose Abraham's family as the vehicle through which he would restore his blessing to all the world. But the new Pharaoh does not view Israel as a blessing. He actually thinks this growing Israelite immigrant group is a threat to his power. And so just as in Genesis, humanity rebels against God's blessing, so here Pharaoh attempts to destroy the source of God's blessing, the Israelites. He brutally enslaves them in forced labor, and then he orders that all the Israelite boys be drowned in the Nile River. Now, Pharaoh, he is the worst character in the Bible so far. His kingdom epitomizes humanity's rebellion against God. Pharaoh has so redefined good and evil according to his own interests that even the murder of innocent children has become good to him. And so Egypt has become worse than Babylon from the book of Genesis. And so now Israel cries out for help against this new Babylon and God responds. God first turns Pharaoh's evil upside down as an Israelite mother throws her boy into the Nile River, but in a basket. And so he floats safely right down into Pharaoh's own family. He's named Moses, and he grows up to eventually become the man that God will use to defeat Pharaoh's evil. In the famous story of the burning bush, God appears to Moses and commissions him to go to Pharaoh and order him to release the Israelites. And God says that he knows Pharaoh will resist, and so he will bring his judgment on Egypt in the form of plagues. Then God also says that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. And so we're introduced into the next main part of the story, the confrontation between God and Pharaoh. Now, what does this mean that God says it will harden Pharaoh's heart? It's super important to read this section of the story really closely and in sequence. In Moses and Pharaoh's first encounter, we're told simply that Pharaoh's heart grew hard. There's no implication that God did anything. And so in response, God sends the first set of five plagues, each one confronting Pharaoh and one of his Egyptian gods. And each time, Moses offers a chance for Pharaoh to humble himself and to let the Israelites go. But after each plague, we're told that Pharaoh either hardened his heart or that his heart grew hard. He's doing this of his own will. And so eventually, it's with the second set of five plagues that we begin to hear how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. 
So the point of the story seems to be this. Even though God knew that Pharaoh would resist his will, God still offered him all of these chances to do the right thing. But eventually, Pharaoh's evil reaches a point of no return. I mean, even his own advisors think that he has lost his mind. And it's at that point that God takes over and bends Pharaoh's evil towards his own redemptive purposes. God lures Pharaoh into his own destruction as he saves his people, which is what happens next. With the final plague, it's the night of Passover, and God turns the tables on Pharaoh. Just as he killed the sons of the Israelites, so God will kill the firstborn in Egypt with a final plague. But unlike Pharaoh, God provides a means of escape through the blood of the lamb. And here the story stops and introduces us in detail to the annual Israelite ritual of Passover. On the night before Israel left Egypt, they sacrificed a young spotless lamb and painted its blood on the doorframe of their house. And when the divine plague came over Egypt, the houses covered with the blood of the lamb were passed over and the sun spared. And so every year since, the Israelites have reenacted that night to remember and to celebrate God's justice and his mercy. But Pharaoh, because of his pride and rebellion, he loses his own son, and he's compelled to finally let the Israelites go free. And so the Israelite slaves make their exodus from Egypt. But no sooner do they leave that Pharaoh changes his mind, and he gathers his army and chases after the Israelites for a final showdown. As the Israelites pass through the waters of the sea safely, Pharaoh charges towards his own destruction. The Exodus story concludes with the first song of praise in the Bible. It's called the Song of the Sea. And the final line declares that the Lord reigns as king. And then the song retells in poetry what the story of God's kingdom is all about. It's about how God is on a mission to confront evil in his world and to redeem those who are enslaved to evil. God is going to bring his people into the promised land where his divine presence will live among them. This story is what it looks like when God becomes king over his people. So after the Israelites sing their song, the story takes a sharp turn. The Israelites, they're trekking through the wilderness on their way to Mount Sinai, and they're hungry, they're thirsty, and they start criticizing Moses and God for even rescuing them. They say they long for the good old days in Egypt. I mean, it's crazy. So God graciously provides food and water for Israel in the wilderness, but these stories, they cast a dark shadow. And we begin to wonder, could it be that Israel's heart is just as hard as Pharaoh's? We shall see. But for now, that's the first half of the book of Exodus. Good morning, and welcome to the book of Exodus. I know what some of you are thinking because you've already asked me, why Exodus? Does anything in the Old Testament have relevance for us today? In his book, An Eye for an Eye, The Place of Old Testament Ethics Today, Christopher Wright writes, the trouble with the Bible is that so much of it is Old Testament. And the trouble with the Old Testament is just that. It's old. Now, of course, for some things, oldness speaks of permanence and lasting, even increasing value. For other things, oldness spells outmoded, obsolete, and irrelevant. So the question is, which category does the Old Testament belong to? That's a great question, 
And I hope that at the conclusion of the next 30 minutes anyway, that you will be able to answer that question at least in part. So we begin the study of the book of Exodus. You know, early in our history as human beings, we rebelled against God and God pursues. And Phil, I loved your talk several weeks back where you talk about that cadence of we move away and God pursues. We move away, God continues to pursue. And so this pursuit begins this time with the descendants of Abraham, the Hebrews. There's much to say about that family. In fact, a large portion of the book of Genesis talks about that family. And a lot happens in that family in a relatively short period of time, considering all of human history. But as Exodus begins, God becomes apparently silent for a lengthy period of time. A great deal of time passes with no word from on high. No miraculous interventions, no prophetic word, just silence. In college, we had required reading by a man named Francis Schaeffer, and he writes a book that's called God is There and He is Not Silent. Now, I don't disagree with the book or its message, but I do believe that sometimes God is definitely silent from our perspective. Do you ever feel that way? Is God listening to me? Do my prayers go anywhere? Does he really care about me? The psalmist wrote these words reflecting similar thoughts. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? And so the book of Exodus opens with an apparent period of silence. But during the silence, there are actually a lot of things happening. Verses 1 to 7 connect us back to the book of Genesis. And let us know that this is a continuing, developing story. But these verses also cover a very lengthy period of time. Let's begin. Exodus 1, these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan, and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Verses 1 to 7 tell us that what's coming up is connected to what has come before. So looking forward, let's consider a few additional connections back that will be made in future chapters of Exodus that connect back to Genesis. 
First off, let's talk about hard toil. We learn in Genesis 3 that hard toil becomes a curse from God. A curse for sin is man's hard toil. And in Exodus, we're about to discover that that has now become the plight of the Israelites. The birth of a child. In Genesis 3, we are given the promise that the birth of a child will bring the Savior to mankind, who is Jesus. In Exodus, we find that a birth of a child will bring the deliverer of Israel, Moses. We also find an interesting thing, and that is that in Genesis 6, we find that people feel that their security is in building things, cities, buildings, Tower of Babel. We also find that Egypt is now trying to buy security through the building of cities and buildings through the Israelite slaves. Verse 7 is a direct link back to the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the book of Genesis. That text says, But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. You know I like math. I have a little fun with math. And so figuring that there are 70 folks that came into Egypt with the family of Jacob, and just assuming a certain birth rate that may be close to what Jacob had, four or five generations later, you could have easily had half a million people. And that's a teaching for another day. But when it talks about exceedingly fruitful and multiplying greatly, it's easy to do the math and find a huge number of people. Here were the promises that were fulfilled. To Abraham, Genesis 12, I will make you into a great nation. Genesis 15, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out with great possessions. Then a generation later in Genesis 26, a similar promise is given to Isaac. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands, and I will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and will give them all these lands, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commands and my decrees and my instructions. Yet another generation passes a similar promise to Jacob. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abram, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give to you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like that of the dust of the earth. And you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. 
All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Verse 7, you know, sometimes in the Bible, there will be chapters and chapters talking about a single 24-hour period of time. Other times in the Bible, you have a single verse, a single verse, like in verse 7, that could be describing hundreds of years. Years where God was silent. Sometimes we may be tempted to think that because God is silent, or because he is not apparent, he is not interested, or he is uninvolved, or that he's not doing anything. But verses 8 through 22 let us know that God, while God may not be broadcasting, he is still alive and hard at work. Another interesting note about the silent time. God foretold what was going to happen during the period of silence. We read it a few minutes ago in Genesis 15 when the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated here. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. So I want to pause here for just a moment. For those of us that feel like there are, there are a number of times in the Bible where God goes apparently silent for hundreds of years. This is one of those times. Another time was after the last of the prophets of Malachi, between then and the birth of Jesus. That period was also about 400 years. 400 years of apparent silence. We may be considered living in one of those times. One of those times where God is apparently silent. But, I love Sherry's prayer. God wants us to live in the present. And he has given us this scripture reading. And he has given us the past that we may study to know that God is a sure thing. And he has given us prophecies to know what is coming in the future so that we may choose to live abundantly in the present. Two words come to mind studying these first seven verses, continuity and contrast. Continuity, the Exodus continues the story of the fulfillment of the promises that were made in Genesis. And a big contrast. The contrast being that a small band of people came into Egypt, but we know that God was preparing a great multitude to enter the promised land. In summary, the first seven verses tell us that all is really going pretty well for the descendants of Jacob. They're exempt from the tax that Joseph so brilliantly, you, do you remember this story? When Joseph was second in command in Egypt and he foretold about the coming famine and so then they stored up these great stores for seven years, and then there were the seven years of famine, and during the seven years of famine, everybody in Egypt ran out of food. So they came to Pharaoh for food, and you remember what happened? They basically sold everything they had to Pharaoh in order to get the food, including their land. And so in order for the Egyptians to get their land back, they ended up having to pay a tax back to, uh, to Egypt to get their land back. But Joseph 
exempted all of those that lived in Goshen that were part of Jacob's family. Because of Joseph's leadership and because of the salvation that he brought to Egypt, all of the Hebrews were exempt from this tax. So they were exempt from the tax that Joseph set up and they were becoming extremely fruitful. They were becoming wealthy and a potential potentially powerful people. And we've been there before too, haven't we? Everything's rolling along just great. Everything's going just fine. You love your job. Your marriage is doing great. Your finances are fine. Okay, so maybe you have to go back a ways before you remember where all those three things lined up at once. But you get the point. Things are going well, and then suddenly the new boss comes. That one that you've been developing the relationship for the last 20 years is gone. And now you're having to start all over. And maybe they have a different person. Maybe things just don't go so well. That happens to the Hebrews in verse 8. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. So historians think that maybe this new king was more new than maybe we have at first thought. And that is because there's a group of people called the Hyksos, which were a people of Semitic and Asian descent who invaded Egypt right around this time. And so it's very possible, and they ruled for about 150 years during the 16th and 17th century BC. And it makes sense that if this new Hyksos king was the one on the throne, he may literally not have been familiar with. I'm sure the stories of Joseph have been told, but he didn't benefit anything from that, if that's the case. And it would make a lot of sense that since he did not benefit from Joseph's providential leadership, he would not have been as interested in providing the same protections. And so we find that he removes the favored status from the Hebrews and eventually enslaves them. Verses 9 and 10 tell the story. Look, he said to his people, these Israelites, they have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So once again, just want you to remember that they've become a very large population at this point. And when you think about it, if it's really the Hyksos who are now in the leadership role in Egypt, the enemies could have actually been the Egyptians. So they may be fearful that the Israelites will join with the Egyptians to fight the Hyksos, if that's the case. But either way, they had become such an important part of society that their departure would be widely felt. Interestingly, all the things that the king was fearful of that drove him to take the actions against the Israelites caused the very thing that he feared to come to pass. Let's continue. Verse 11 tells us, So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. Josephus tells us that they were also forced to work in the fields and build canals. The intention was to subdue and oppress them. 
and therefore lower their numbers. But verse 12 and 13 tell us how that worked out. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. The response by the new regime was to tighten the screws even tighter. Verse 14 says they made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Many years pass, perhaps hundreds. God is still silent, but the Hebrews, they keep increasing in number. The king gets desperate. He must do something to stop their growth. Hard work is not doing the job. So now he turns to the midwives. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shurfa, Shifra, and Pua. When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. I just have to say, as, an, as, a, as a guy, I have a little problem with that. I mean, what's the deal? We don't give birth to babies. Okay, maybe we have a little something to do with it. But it is interesting because this all-important task that the Pharaoh feels like he needs taken care of, he gives entirely to Hebrew midwives. Isn't that interesting? And you could, from my perspective, it seems like you would kill the girls and keep the guys because the guys could work, right? I mean, they could be hard workers. But the historians tell us that they wanted to kill the boys and keep the girls because back then the girls were also hard slave workers. So that was their plan. So my thinking also went down the path of what if the midwives really did start killing the boys? How many of you, how long do you think it would take for that word to get around? Probably not very long. So if you're a family about ready to have a baby and you know that if you call the Hebrew midwife, she's going to kill your boy. If it's a boy, you think you'd be calling that midwife? So it seems like an ill-conceived plan from the start. Pardon the pun. Verse 17 tells us the midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Again, there had to be a period of time go by for the king to notice whether this was working or whether this wasn't working. The Bible doesn't tell us that they took a census, but perhaps that's what they did. Notice that things weren't changing or in fact, the Hebrews were continuing to grow. So the king notices again that the plan to curtail the growth of the Israelites was not working. So he demands an explanation from the midwives. Verse 19 tells us the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and they give birth before the midwives arrive. You know, it's very possible that the midwives were telling the truth. It's not like they could just get there in an instant and maybe the labor 
that the Israelite women were being caused to work under caused them to be more robust. Maybe they did deliver more efficiently. God could have blessed them to deliver more efficiently, quicker than their Egyptian counterparts. And here we find that because of the midwife's faithfulness to God, instead of obeying Pharaoh, it is interesting to note that God rewards the midwives in two ways. Verse 20 tells us, So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Midwives back then were historically midwives because they were unable to have children of their own. So they became midwives. But here we find that God blessed them and gave them families of their own. The first reward is evident, families of their own. The second reward may be a little less obvious, but I feel like it's still a reward. If I asked you to name the pharaohs, who was the pharaoh or who was the king during this time? Could you tell me? Who was the pharaoh? Oh, there's some speculation. Don't know. Don't know. But if I asked you who the midwives were, verse 15 tells us, Shifra and Pua. Just as God blessed Mary for anointing Jesus' body with perfume at the Passover by telling people that wherever the story of the gospel would be told, this story too would be told. I believe God blessed Shifra and Pua because their names were recorded by Moses for all time because of their act of faithfulness to God. Proverbs 10 verse 7 tells us that the names of the righteous the name of the righteous is used in blessings but the name of the wicked will rot. The psalmist tells us may his descendants be cut off <clears throat> their names blotted out from the next generation and may their sins always remain before the Lord that he may blot out their name from the earth. Pharaoh's name was blotted out. Sifra and Pua, we knew those names. We know those names. But couldn't tell you the name of the king. God doesn't care about position or rank or prestige in life. Only that we fear God, obey his commands, and trust in his son to save us. If not, we're just what's his name to God. It kind of reminds me of the parable in Matthew 25. The parable of the ten virgins, the five who are foolish. And Jesus said words to them, I don't know you. We can choose to, be, to dare to be a Daniel or dare to be a Shifra or a Pua. To dare to do what is right in God's eyes. Or we can be a nameless king. But King What's-His-Name hadn't given up yet. One last attempt. Verse 22, Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. 
what Pharaoh was failing to see was that he was fighting a losing battle. He failed to see that he was just a pawn in the hand of Satan. And he failed to see that he was simply living out the prophecy foretold in Genesis 3 that will be played out over and over again until the end of time. Genesis 3.15 says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. You see, all Pharaoh was allowed to do was strike at the heel. The promise was given that the Savior would come from the Hebrews, the Israelites, the Jews. The prophecies were well known even in Jesus' time. John 4.22 says, You Samaritans worship what you now know. We worship what we do know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Everybody knew that salvation was from the Jews. Galatians 3.16 says, The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. It was well known that Christ was to come through the Hebrew family. Therefore, Pharaoh was destined for failure at trying to wipe out the seed of Abraham. The act of King What's-His-Name and trying to destroy all the Hebrew boys is the very thing that sets the stage for chapter 2 of Exodus, where the Deliverer is born. So I was studying this, I thought about different perspectives. As you look at this story, as you look at this time in history, you can look at it from a number of perspectives. The first perspective is from Pharaoh's perspective. New king comes in, sees, sees these people over here, they're not paying taxes, they could be providing a lot more work. His perspective was selfishly concerned only for himself, only for his life of ease, for that of his country. Israelites' perspective, what was their perspective? Well, things had gone from really, really good to really, really bad. And where in the world is God? The midwives, they have a perspective. Even, they, even though they don't understand everything that's going on, they trust God and obey him rather than the king. They should be our example. And then we have the unseen perspectives. Because always in the background, these, these unseen perspectives are at work. Satan, what's his perspective? Well... He is constantly seeking to thwart God's plans. Constantly seeking to ruin the lives of God's people. Especially relating to the birth of the promised Messiah. And from God's perspective, always working. Sometimes quietly behind the scenes to fulfill his purposes and his promises bringing blessing from adversity. In this case, there were several purposes that God accomplished during the time period covered 
in Exodus 1. I can think of five. One, the Israelite people were kept pure. You see, by bringing them down to Goshen just outside of Egypt, that took them away from the Canaanites, away from those that they were very tempted and past experience shows that they would have intermarried and that the whole Jewish race would have been diluted. But here, there were two things that kept the Egyptians from wanting anything to do with them. Number one, just the natural part of the fact that they hated the Hebrews kept them away. But secondly, they were shepherds. And they were not interested in them. And so there was a natural division between those people that kept the Israel people pure. Second purpose I can think of that we haven't talked about in here, but in Genesis we learn that judgment on the Canaanites was not finished. God was not finished with them. They needed more time. And man, what a beautiful, what a beautiful principle that is. That God does not make hasty judgments on us. He allows us. He wants us to come to him. He allows opportunity. He allows time for us to come. So he was allowing more time for the Canaanites. So judgment on the Canaanites was delayed. Purpose number three. By eventually interacting with the Egyptians, which they did as they were enslaved, the light of God's salvation was taken to the Egyptians. And we will learn as we go on down the road a ways that many of the Egyptians joined the Hebrews in leaving Egypt. Purpose number four, God's promise to Israel that they would become a multitude was being fulfilled. Israel during this time became a great multitude. Purpose number five, God was preparing Israel physically, militarily, and economically for what was ahead to enter the promised land. So is there value in studying the Old Testament? Are there any principles that can be applied to us today? Is there value in the book of Exodus? Well, here are several take-homes that I got from chapter 1. Number one, God's purposes are being fulfilled even when we are not actively involved in bringing them to pass. And for some of us, that's hard to accept, but it's true. God doesn't always require our involvement to bring his purposes to pass. Key learning number two, God's purposes are being fulfilled even when we are not aware of it and when every appearance points to the contrary. God's purposes will always come to pass. Point number three, when this is the case, God has often previously announced prophetic, prophetically what he is doing during such times of apparent silence. God had prophecies that foretold of this period of time in, in the Hebrew existence. The prophecies of the Old Testament foretold of the time period that would pass before the Messiah's coming. And the prophecies of Daniel too tell us of the silence that we are currently experiencing today and what is coming to pass during this time. Purpose number four, when God is silent, we must live by faith, as did the midwives, and by the principles of his word. Purpose number five, God's purposes, or key learning number five, God's purposes are as easily achieved in adversity as 
as they are in comfort and is readily accomplished through unbelievers as through the believers. God sometimes does his best work during times of adversity and through people that we would never guess. Last key learning. There are similarities between these experiences of Israel and the events that we are experiencing and will experience as time draws to a close. So, is there any relevance of the Old Testament to today's life? Does Exodus have any lessons for me in my life today? I would have to answer a resounding yes. May God bless us as we continue to dive into his word. Father, we are so thankful for the stories that you have chosen to record for us in your Holy Scripture. And Lord, it's my prayer that as each one of us has been here this morning and have heard the stories about the Exodus and about your pursuit of us and about the fact that you may be silent from our perspective, but you are always there. You there, you are there and you love us with an everlasting love. And Father, it's my prayer that each one of us may sing a song in return to you. I love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.